First extract of Marge Asking for It by Barry Payne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Boydell. First extract The Catastrophic Family. I was christened Margarine, of course, but in my own circle I have always been known as Marge. The name is, I am informed, derived from the Latin word margo, meaning the limit. I have always tried to live right up to it. We were a very numerous family, and I can find space for biographical detail of only a few of the more important. I must keep room for myself. My elder sister, Cassane, Cassie, as we always called her, was supposed to be the most like myself, and was less booked about it than one would have expected. I never made any mistake myself as to which was which. I had not her beautiful, lustrous eyes, but neither had she my wonderful cheek. She had not my intelligence. Nor had she my priceless gift for uttering an unimportant personal opinion as if it were the final verdict of posterity with the black cap on. We were devoted to one another, and many a time have I owed my position as a temporary parlour-maid in an unsuspicious family to the excellent character that she had written for me. She married Moses Morgenstein, a naturalised British subject, who showed his love for his adopted country by trading as Stanley Harcourt. He was a striking figure with his cold black hair and nails, his drooping eyelashes and underlip, and the downward sweep of his ingratiating nose. The war found him burning with enthusiasm, and I give here one verse of a fine poem which he wrote, and, as I will remember, recited in Mrs. Motworth's Salon. I vos in Lunton since three year, in dis land I hold so tear, England, my England, mit her overbowering might, if she gonker in the fight, M. Morgenstein will be right, nicht? England to my own. He was a man of diverse talents, and I used to regret that he gave to the tripe dressing what was meant for the muses. Alas, he was, though indirectly, one of the many victims of the Great War. His scheme for the concealment of excess profits was elaborate and ingenious, and practised with assiduity. His simple mind could not apprehend that elemental honesty was in process of modification. "'What I make for myself, dat I keep, nicked,' he often said to me. And then the blow fell. However, he has earned the utmost remission to which good conduct could entitle him, and we are hoping that he will be out again by Christmas. My next sister, Saccharin, was of a flimsy and prismatic beauty that was sufficient evidence of her coal-tar origin. Our mother, of course, was a coal-tar, I never thought her mind the equal of my own. Indeed, at the moment of going to press, I have not yet met the mind that I thought the equal of my own. But about her beauty there was no doubt. In those days, I am speaking of the nineties, it was quite an ordinary event for my sister, inadvertently, to hold up an omnibus. The horses pulled up as soon as they saw her, and refused to move until they had drunk their fill of her astounding beauty. I well remember one occasion 
on which the horses in a West Kensington omnibus met her at Piccadilly Circus and refused to leave her until she reached Highgate, in spite of the whip of the driver, the blasphemy of the conductor, the more formal complaints of the passengers, and direct police intervention. She was a sweet girl in those days, and I loved her. I never had any feelings of jealousy. How can one, who is definitely assured of superiority to everybody, be jealous of anybody? She married a Russian, Alexis Chopitov. He was a perfect artist in his own medium, which happened to be her. It is to him that I owe what is my only beauty, and I am assured that it defies detection. At one time, life's greatest prizes seemed to be within his reach. During the war, his skill in rendering the chevalier of noted pianists fit for military service attracted official attention, and if he had been made OBE, it would have come as no surprise to any of us. Unhappily, his interest in the political affairs of his own country led him to annex at Waterloo a dispatch case which, pedantically speaking, did not belong to him. The case, unfortunately, happened to contain a diamond tiara, and this led to misunderstandings. Nothing could have exceeded the courage of dear Saccharine when she learned that at the end of this sentence he was to be deported. "'It will leave me,' she said with perfect calm, and in words that have since become historical, in a position of greater freedom and less responsibility. But I knew how near she was to a nervous breakdown. Indeed, a nervous breakdown was her successful defence when, a week later, she was arrested at White Ridges with a tin of sardines, two cakes of super cream toilet soap and a bound copy of Kebble's Christian Year in her muff. The malice and animosity that White Ridges showed in the prosecution are but partly excused by the fact that dear Saccharine had pinched the muff first. Another sister, Chlorine, in later years, became well-known as a medium. She communicated with the hereafter, or at the very least professed to do so, by telephonic wireless. It used to be rather weird to hear her ring up, Gainer, one double seven six. I have not the least doubt that she would have convinced a famous physicist who, curiously enough, is weak on facts, or a writer of detective stories who, equally curiously, is weak on imagination. I am sorry to say she would never give me the winner of the next derby, nor do I remember that she ever used this special and exclusive information for her own benefit, but, like other mediums, she could always give a plausible reason for avoiding any test that was really a test, and now that she has doubled her fees owing to the increased cost of labour and materials, she ought to do very well, particularly after the friendly boost that I have just given her. Then there was Methyl. This is the old Anglo-Saxon form of Ethel. She was a charming child and made a profound study of natural history. I remember her saying to me at a reception where the refreshments had been somewhat restricted, One cocktail doesn't make a swallow. Modern biology has, I believe, confirmed this observation. She spent much of her time at the zoo, and it was thought that it would be an advantage if she could be permanently resident there. But although she was not unlike a flamingo in the face, and I had some interest with the man who supplies the fish for the sea lions, no vacant cage could be found. An offer to let her share one with the cassowary, 
Missionara Timbuktana, was refused. I must now speak of another sister, Caramel, though I do with grief. However, there is a skeleton in every fold, I mean to say, a black sheep in every cupboard. She was undeniably beautiful, and had a romantic postcard face. Her figure was perfect. Her intelligence was C3. In a weak moment, she accepted a thinking part in a review at the Frivolity, and her career ended, as might have been expected, in a shocking mesalliance. She married the Marquis of Beanstrite, and has more than once appeared on the back page of the Daily Mail. But that is not everything. She never sees anything of me now, and it brings the tears to my eyes when I think of what she is missing. My brothers were all of them sportsmen, but they were seldom at home. They seemed to feel that they were wanted elsewhere, and they generally were. You ask any policeman in the Kentish Town District, mentioning my name, and he will tell you. There were seventy-three of us altogether, of whom eighty-four survive, including myself, and yet dear Papa sometimes seems a little irritable. I wonder why. My mamma was quite different from my Papa. They were not even the same sex, but that so often happens, don't you think? My father had a curious fancy for naming all his sons after subsequent winners of the Derby. No doubt it will be said that this is not always practical, nor is it. The Derby is occasionally won by a GG of the sex which I have myself adopted, and in those cases the name is unsuitable for a boy, but if it could be generally done, it would absolutely preclude any betting on one of our classic races. It would probably also preclude the race. After all, we do have to be moral in the intervals, and reclaim factory girls in the dinner hour, but I fear it will never happen. So few men have dear Papa's wonderful foresight. Spearmint, my eldest surviving brother, came much under the influence of Alexis Chopitoff, and entered the same profession, simple and unassuming. No one would have supposed that in one year he had backed the winner in all the principal races, but such was veritably the case. "'There's nothing in it, Marge,' he said to me one evening. "'There's only one sure way to win, back every horse in the race with another man's money. I tell a customer the tale that I was shaving a well-known trainer that morning, and that the trainer had given me a certainty. All I ask is that the customer will put half a crown on for me. I repeat the process, changing the name of the certainty, until I have got all risks covered. I know it's old-fashioned, but I like it. It demands nothing but patience, and it cannot possibly go wrong. But it did go wrong. He was telling the tale of how the well-known trainer had given him the certainty to a new customer whom Spearmint had never shaved before. By a disastrous coincidence, it happened that the new customer actually was that well-known trainer. He seemed to think that Spearmint had taken a liberty with his name, and even to resent it. Spearmint did not lose the sight of the left eye, as was at one time feared, but his looks have never been quite the same since his nose was broken. My next brother, Orby, was born in 1870. He could do the most graceful and charming things. When his namesake won the Derby in 1907, he immediately acquired a complimentary Irish accent, 
and employed it in the narration of humorous stories. An accent acquired at the age of thirty-seven is perhaps liable to lack conviction, and I always thought that my brother was over-scrupulous in beginning every sentence with the word, Bidad. Like myself, he simply did not know what fear was, and in consequence told his Irish stories in his own Irish accent to a real Irishman. However, now that he has got his new teeth in, you would never know that he'd been hit. It was said of him by the great legal authority, I forget in which police court, that he had the best manners and the least honesty of any taxi driver on the Knightsbridge rank. Another brother, Sunstar, acquired considerable reputation by his skill in domain. If you lent him a watch or a coin with one turn of his hand, he would make it disappear. He could do the same when you had not lent it. He could make anything disappear that was not absolutely screwed to the floor, and at public houses where he was known, the pewter from which he drank was always chained to the bar. He has something of my own quixotic nature, and would probably have taken the rest if he had wanted it. One day at Ascot, he made a stranger's watch disappear. When he came to examine his newly acquired property, he was disappointed to find that the watch was a four-and-sixpenny American Everbright, puts you wrong day and night. He was on the point of throwing it away when the kindly thought came to him that perhaps the stranger attached some sentimental value to that watch. Indeed, there seemed to be no other possible reason for wearing it. Sunstar determined to replace the watch in the stranger's pocket. He did his best, but he was far more practised in removing than in replacing. The stranger, a hulking, cowardly brute, caught my brother with his hand in his pocket and failed to grasp the altruism of his motives. And that is why poor Sonny walks a little lame. He is not with us at present. He had made quite a number of things disappear, and a censorious world is ever prone to judge by disappearances. It became expedient and even necessary for my brother to make himself disappear, and he did so. The second extract, as they say on the film, will follow immediately. End of first extract.